Isaiah 46. I can hear it ringing. And I want to do this. So this week, you know, Thanksgiving has gone. We've started Advent. And uh, we got a break in, the, in, in some of our time here. We began to decorate at home. And so uh, the lights got to go up in between rain showers. And uh, I picked a day that Apple Weather said there was going to be no rain, which was Friday, which didn't work, right? So as much as I love Apple, their weather department is now fired for sure. So one of the things we do, though, in our family room is we clear out some space, right? We, we move some things around and we put in a Christmas tree. It's not like this place where we put this tree is always empty. There's other stuff that goes there. But as Christmas season rolls around and we know we're going to decorate, some of the things that we have that are, you know, normal throughout, you know, 11 months of the year, those things get put away and we make room for our Christmas decorations. And in the same way, that's kind of what we're looking at today. How do we prepare for Christ. So God has been incredibly intentional to prepare the way for Jesus in us, uh, in, in many generations before us, and would call us today to do the same. How are we preparing for Christ this year? And that may sound counterintuitive to some of you. You're thinking, well, I'm already a follower of Jesus. Like, I, I know what this means. How does this apply to me? And I would say this, that all of us, believer, non-believer, um, whether we're brand new to Jesus or we've been walking with Jesus for decade after decade after decade. All of us constantly are preparing ourselves to hear from him. All of us are constantly trying to put ourselves in a place where we can surrender more and more to Jesus. And so that's what we get to do this season. And we want to focus on that. So God prepares the way uh, will be our, kind of our main idea for the day. God used Isaiah to prepare Israel for their deliverance from Babylon. God used John the Baptist, as you heard in Advent, in the Advent reading, to prepare Israel for Jesus. And God uses scripture today to prepare us for Christ to work in us this Christmas. So this gets to be for all of us. Where does God want to work in our hearts, in our lives today? So we're going to be in Isaiah 46. It's a huge passage. We're going to work through three chapters really fast. And so large chunks of reading uh, so if you have a Bible with you, you're going to need that. If there's one in the seat in front of you. Otherwise, you may get lost in this because it's a lot of reading. All right. Isaiah 46, starting in verse 1. It says, Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden. But themselves go into captivity. So God is speaking now, and just as a pickup point, if you're new here, if you're our guest today, we're glad that you're here. We'd love it if you'd fill out a connection card and, and check in with us, maybe meet us out front after service. But we're picking up really almost at the end of Isaiah. We will wrap Isaiah up not too far into 2020. And so where we are now is God's people have been incredibly disobedient generation after generation, hundreds of years of the people of God just not listening to God. God has been speaking out to them and calling them back, saying, listen, you've, you've been acting like the people in the nations around you. You've begun to worship the gods and the nations around you, the idols that they worship. And I've been calling you back. I've been telling you I'm the one true God. So that's been the recurring theme. After years of them not listening, God finally says, listen, I'm gonna allow you to be taken into captivity. And so long beforehand, God allows Israel and Judah to be taken into captivity by a nation called Babylon, a king named Nebuchadnezzar. And they spend many years losing a whole generation to captivity. And at the end of that, God begins to speak to them again through Isaiah, 
a message that he had written down, like the book that we call Isaiah, had all been written down by Isaiah and handed off to his disciples. He is long dead, but now God has said, open up. Open up the scrolls of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, and tell the people I'm going to release them, and here's what they're to do. And so God is now speaking in that space where they're in Babylon. They're still in captivity, but they're about to be released. And so God has been speaking to them and preparing them to go back to their own nation. Now God, in this verse, speaks to Babylon. He speaks to the pagan nation or the the nation that doesn't worship him. He speaks to them, and he starts calling out their idols. Bel and Nebo are two that he speaks to. Verse 3, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry you and, sa- and will save. So God is speaking to Babylon. He's also speaking to his people, Israel. Listen to the way to this. I will carry you, God speaking to them. I have made you, I will bear you, I will carry you and save you. So as God prepares to release them, to send them back to their nation, God is saying this, listen, it's me that does it. So to keep this in context, I called you to repentance, you didn't. I then told you ahead of time, I'm going to send you into captivity of another nation. You didn't listen, but I did it. You've been in captivity, now I'm telling you very clearly how I'm going to release you. And God has named a man named Cyrus several times already. Cyrus is, at this point in history, this rising power. He's a king over another nation. It's not as big as Babylon, but he's been growing in power. His army has been growing. But this has been written down for hundreds of years before Cyrus was even born. And so God is reminding them, I say this in advance, and then I do it. And I do it this way so that you know it's me, so that there's no confusion about who is doing what. God says, I tell you in advance. I will carry you out of exile. It will be me that saves you. He says, and you know this because this is how I've told you I would do it. Verse 5, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me, that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god, then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it and set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries out to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. So God has been having this ongoing dialogue about their primary sin. And their primary sin has been idolatry, that they have been worshiping others, not God. And this this is, idolatry is kind of a bucket that you can throw all of sin into, if you will. Like you can take anything, anything, even good things, and you can make them idols. You can make a family your idol, even though God gives you a family. You can make your education an idol, your job an idol, your skill set, your income. You can make your power, your possessions. You make all these things idols, even if God gave them to you. And so it's not uncommon for us to hear about the key sin that the people of God are dealing with is idolatry, because it's common to all of us. 500 years ago, as the Reformation is launching, as it's really starting to kind of grow and take steam, one of the primary theologians of the Reformation, John Calvin, wrote that our hearts are factories for idols, that our hearts churn out idol after idol, day after day, that we create things that we bow down and worship. 
And that's what God is saying here. He says, listen, do not see that you go in and you take all your gold and you go to a goldsmith and you have this goldsmith then fashion an idol out of it. And then you have to carry this idol from the goldsmith over to the place where you're going to set it. And then you set it down and then all of a sudden you bow down and worship it. He says, if you speak, it can't talk back. It can't even carry itself from where it was made to where it's going to stand. God has been mocking them in the past and say, listen, you have to make sure that you, you make your idols so well that they don't fall down when the wind blows. Or that you have to put chains on them so they don't topple over. He says, how is it that you fashion something out of wood? You make it look like a man. And then you stand it up and you bow down and worship to it. And God says, but this is what you do. Over and over and over again, this is what you do. You give yourselves to anything else other than me. So idolatry defined is just this. When we give to something, anything, a place in our heart or in our life that only God should be, then when we give so much time, so much energy, so much money, so much devotion to something, that it exceeds what we give to God, that becomes an idol. And so God says, I am God. There is no other. So God has been using this as their primary sin to call out what they've been doing wrong. And then in the midst of that, he says, so here's what I do. Unlike your idols, I will tell you what's coming in advance and how I'm going to do it. And then I will carry it out. That way you know it's me. And God has at times even taunted them and said, listen, ask your idols to tell you the future, but they can't speak. Ask your idols to hear your prayers. They have ears, but they can't hear. At one point, God just taunts the people and says, listen, have your idols even tell the past. Even the things that have already happened, they can't do it. He says, I alone am God. So how do we do this today? So I want to talk about idolatry and Christmas. Consider what we give the most priority time, value, and money to this season. To this season, excuse me. It is our faith, or is it our faith or our culture that drives us? If God were to assess our faith by how we celebrate this season, how would we measure up? Now, notice I'm not asking you about how God measures your salvation, right? I'm not talking about whether you're going to heaven or not. I'm not saying that. I'm saying if your faith, if it was measurable, like everything else in life, we know how much money we have because of a bank account. Every time you walk into a doctor's office, they measure things. How much do you weigh? What is your blood pressure? And what's your temperature? It's just a way of kind of taking a snapshot of your health in one moment. So if your faith were measurable, by what you do during Christmas, right? The time named after Christ, a time when we take, or Advent, when we spend time leaning into Christmas. So the very time you should be focused on Jesus, what if God used that as a snapshot for your faith? How much time do you give to gift giving and decorating and party going and, and how, many, how much time do you give to family, to work? How much time do you give to all these things compared to how much time do you really spend focusing in on Jesus and Christmas? Does that make sense? What if God were just to measure us on that, to kind of take a snapshot, like when you go into a doctor's office and go, okay, this is kind of a snapshot of your, your spiritual health. And this is the time when you should be focused on Christ. This is some easy wins, Yet, how do we measure up? Now, again, I'm not, getting, I'm not creating rules here. I'm not saying, well, if you do this or if you do that. But in this season where we should be focusing on Jesus, how much time do we actually spend 
seeking him out versus other things. Verse 8. Remember this and stand firm, God says. Recall it to mind, you transgressors or sinners. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God reminds Israel of the prophecies given to them, told in advance of how God is going to liberate them from Babylon. He's named a man named Cyrus. He says, this is the way. This is who is going to deliver you from Babylonian captivity. And again, remember, this was done before Cyrus was even born. So God keeps reminding them, listen, I've said this is how it's going to happen. In fact, God is saying it now before it happens, but now Cyrus is alive. But God continues to point to, listen, I'm doing this before it happens so that you'll know it's me. God did the same thing. You heard in our Advent readings earlier, as Justine was reading, about John the Baptist. We looked at a verse out of Isaiah that says, in the wilderness, a cry goes out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. And then Justine read that verse out of Luke that said that there was one in the wilderness. His name was John the Baptist, and he was crying out, prepare or make straight the ways of the Lord. Other translations say, repent for the, king, or for the Lord, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's always, these, it's always these, these people, these prophets, these leaders that are speaking out on behalf of God that are pointing to something. There's always a reason. God is speaking to the Israelites, to the Jewish people in Babylon right now, telling them he's going to release them. It's not just to prove that it's him, although that's a big piece of it. But the second part of this is prepare yourselves. God is calling them to be prepared for this moment. We see this true. If you're familiar with the story of how the, the Hebrew slaves were released from Egypt, the same thing. God would tell them over and over again, prepare yourselves. I'm going to do this. And then God would do these things with Pharaoh. And we know that story about the, the 10 plagues and the different things that happened between Moses and Pharaoh. But there's another conversation going on in between all these activities between Moses and Pharaoh and what God is doing, the people keep being told, prepare yourselves. I know it doesn't look good right now, but God is going to release you from Egypt. So there's this recurring theme. John the Baptist will say, prepare the way of the Lord. How are we preparing ourselves right now for Christmas, for Christ, for this season, for this time of year that we have an opportunity not only to focus on our own faith, but we have an amazing opportunity to invite other people into it. Christmas and Easter stand alone as the one time that many of our family members and friends and neighbors will come to church, that those two holidays will often be celebrated. You want to know the number one reason? There's, in fact, there's a massive percentage of people, well over 50% of the people say they would attend a Christian church. Do you know the number one thing that prevents them? They said the number one reason why they don't go Nobody's asked. They said if they were asked, they would go. Just imagine anywhere you've gone, any place you've been where you're unfamiliar with what was going to happen. You go into this kind of meeting or this kind of setting or this kind of party or this person's home. And there's this anxiety about like, how do I, how do I fit in here? What do I do? What do I not do? What are the appropriate kind of rules to get along here? 
That's how people might feel about church if they haven't been. Like, what am I supposed to wear? Can I bring coffee in that room? Where you go, Why do you guys sing? What do you guys do, right? They said the thing that prevents them from coming is nobody's asked. So are we preparing ourselves for Christmas Eve? Are we preparing ourselves for this season as we celebrate the birth of Christ? This should not just be like a, a memorial of something that happened, but this should be a life-changing moment for each one of us. This should be a place where we connect with God deeper. And yes, that should happen every Sunday. That should be every Tuesday, every whatever. That it should happen like that. But we have these opportunities where we get to press in with a specific focus and draw near to Jesus. Verse 12, God says, Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I will bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion and for Israel my glory. So there's two things here. God proclaims a savior to the people. God has been using all the activities and the events of history, the real things that are going to take place in their lives, and he's been using that to foreshadow Christ to come. And there are seasons where God will say something, and then he'll do it partly. And he just reminds them that this will come fully when what the, the Jewish people of this day would have called a Messiah, when the Messiah comes. They know they're waiting on a big salvation, they know that a salvation will come through Cyrus. When he delivers them from Babylon, that they will be rescued from Babylon. But they also know that they're waiting on a Messiah, that they're waiting on someone from God to come and restore people back to God, restore God to humanity and humanity back to God. So there's also not only a, a proclaiming a savior, but there's a call to listen and repent. He says, listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. So no, for you, listen and repent. We all get the opportunity every time we come to church, read the Bible, or any way we make room for God to speak to us, we have the opportunity or even an obligation to respond. God calls for a change of heart when he speaks. Repent, we hear this, this word in church, and repent is actually, the English word repent comes from an old military term that means to, when you're losing a fight or when you're fighting in the wrong direction, when you need to, to save your life, you have to run you have to turn and run the opposite direction. That's the English word. So we hear that definition a lot in church. But the Greek word here, metanoia, or the Hebrew word, I don't know the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word in, in, uh, in, in Isaiah is the same as the Greek word in the New Testament. And really what it means is a change of mind or a change of heart. That we, we turn, like the English word says, and we run for a reason. Either we're losing this fight and we realize this, there's no way to continue to do this, so we turn and we run for our lives. That's how we should run from sin. But in the Bible, it doesn't speak to it as a physical turning and running. It speaks to about an internal change. That our head and our heart, metaphorically, when they change, when they learn, they learn okay, this is not good for me. Like, I've been going in this direction and it's not working. I've had a change of mind. We have an opportunity every time, whether we gather in church, in a small group, whether we open the Bible in the mornings to sit down and pray and read, whatever it is that we do to connect with God, we have an opportunity, maybe even an obligation, to have our heart changed, that we should be listening to God, that we're not doing this as an academic exercise, or we're not doing this out of religious devotion where we just go through the motions each day or each week. But that as we open up God's word, we actually anticipate God speaking to us. Not because of me, not because of the church, 
Well, because it's God. Because God desires to speak to us, because God desires to turn us into the people he's created us to be. So every time we get to meet with God, every time we get to open God's word, every time we make room for God to speak, we should be listening with an expectation that we're being called to something or called away from something. Isaiah 47, verse 1. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. So God is back to telling Babylon, Babylon, you will come down. Babylon, you will be defeated. And so as God speaks, there's a lot of imagery here. And so he's talking about this comfort, this level that Babylon is in, thinking they will never be overcome, thinking they will enjoy this setting for, for many, many generations to come. And God says, listen, prepare yourself. You're going to be humbled. Verse 4, our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name, the Holy One of Israel. So the Lord of hosts, the Holy One of Israel, is pointing forward, obviously, to Jesus, right? If we have any kind of background in the Bible at all, Jesus is often called the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And then Isaiah gets confusing because we know God is speaking through Isaiah the prophet to his people. And we know that Jesus has not yet entered into human history. Jesus has not yet become flesh, what we call incarnate. That's what we celebrate in Christmas. But Jesus isn't created. Jesus isn't designed as a pregnancy. Jesus is God who created the heavens and the earth, who has become flesh. He is the eternal God, no beginning, no end. The same as God the Father. We talk about a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, a subject for a different day because it's hard to unpack. The important part, that Jesus existed before the beginning, that Jesus created, and that Jesus is now not only speaking, but being spoken about, that Jesus will become flesh, that he will come and be the redeemer. Now, everybody in Isaiah's time didn't fully understand that. It was not like there was a way to look at this and go, oh, that totally makes sense. But Jesus, who is God, is saying, listen, I'm going to enter in and become flesh. And so again, understand, not everybody had a full understanding of this. In fact, many who knew scriptures super well, in fact, those who knew the scriptures the best, almost entirely missed Jesus when he became flesh. A lot of that is misunderstanding. They were waiting for a conquering king. They confused verses like this, where Cyrus is a type of salvation, for him being the only type of salvation, and that when the Messiah came, he would be a conquering king, a military hero. But Jesus came to be a different kind of conquering king, to conquer sin, to overcome what keeps us from God. And so there was some misunderstanding sometimes, and not everybody always had it together. But it's easy to look at this in retrospect with thousands of years of history and all of Scripture complete to understand, okay, this is what is being said here. Verse 5, it says this. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans and Babylon are the same people. For you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people, God speaking. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand, and you showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. 
You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. So for some context here, if you're unfamiliar with Scripture, if you're not familiar with this, this period of time, the book of Daniel is written during this period of captivity. Daniel obviously being the main character. If you grew up in a Sunday school anywhere and went to a youth group, you probably heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you grew up on Veggie Tales, you heard of Rack, Shack, and Benny. Same idea, right? <laughs> Rack, Shack, and Benny's easier to say. What we get is a snapshot of this time period when they're in captivity in Babylon. What we know about Daniel and the others is that they became, uh, they were incredibly favored by God. And they studied all the Babylonian religions and literature and all the different things, all the arts, all the stuff that you could study. They were the best of the best that were taken captive out of Israel. And because of that, and God showed favor to them, they grew and they became influencers and they got to sit in the room with the emperor, with the king, with Nebuchadnezzar. And they used to be, they were counselors. They would give advice. In fact, there are story after story where all the counsel around Nebuchadnezzar could not answer his questions and Daniel could. So just as a snapshot, during this captivity, God was still using those of his people who wanted to be used, who were willing and would, would make themselves available. But I tell you that to tell you this, Nebuchadnezzar knew that the God of the Israelites was real and was powerful. That at times when none of his people, none of his idols, none of his kingdom could give him advice that, was, that would answer his questions, that would lead him the way he was asking for, the God of the Bible would speak through a young Jewish captive slave, ultimately, named Daniel. So Nebuchadnezzar is not without blame to know who God is, or to know that these are God's people. So hear God when he says this. He says, you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. Profane means to make common. We hear the word profanity. We think of certain words that we, we put in that category. It's really about God's name. It's to, to profane God's name or to profane something that is holy. Is to take something that is holy, meaning set apart for used by God only, and to make it common. That's all profane means. So God is saying this, I took my set-apart people, my holy people, and I made them common slaves to you. I allowed you to take them in captivity because of my anger at their lack of repentance. He says, but you should have known better. I used people in your midst. You, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, Chaldee, you should have known better. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the age, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. Verse 7, you said, I shall be mistress forever so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember that end. Verse 8, now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children Nations are often talked about as women. They're given a, a feminine uh, pronoun, like a boat or a nation. There's, that's a common thing. And so God is speaking about Babylon, or Chaldee was the original, the, the original nation that Babylon took over. And there, he's talking about it as a female. He's using that, that same language we might about America or about another nation or about other things. He's just giving them that feminine pronoun. He says, listen, you... You thought you would be a mistress forever. You thought you would enjoy all the fun and all the spoils and all the party. 
And all the enjoyment there was, you thought you would enjoy that forever. You thought you would never know being a widow. You thought you would never know pain. Here's what he says, and I think this is probably the greatest indictment on Babylon and something we all need to hear too. Verse 8, in the middle of it, it says, Who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. See, God is always saying, I am, right? I am the Lord. I am the only God. I am, everything else is not. When God sends Moses back into Egypt to say, release his, his people to send the slaves out or let them go, Moses says, well, whom shall I say sent me? He says, I am that I am. You tell him I am sent you. Jesus will go on and use that language eight times. And that we see this in the Gospel of John. And when he uses this language, everyone around him knows what he's saying, knows that he's claiming to be God. And several times they attempt to kill him because of using this language. That this I am language was so significant of God saying, I am all that there is. I am, there is no other. Hear this in the context of people believing this about themselves. You say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall never know the widow or the loss of children. I'm in charge of this, humanity says. I am, Babylon says. I will never know the kind of suffering that everyone else has known. That is the ultimate in idolatry when we have so much faith in ourselves that we, we find ourselves as divine. Verse 9, these two things shall come on you in a moment. So widowing and loss of children. These two things shall come on you in a moment. And one day the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure. In spite of your many sorceries and with great power of your enchantments, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you shall not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. That loss of husband and children is about the armies being wiped out. You as a nation will lose your men, your grown men who are soldiers and your young men who are children. You will lose them. God's saying, because I will defeat you. Verse 12, stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries of which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who with the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Babylon is that original place that studied astrology, that looked to the moon and looked to the stars. But again, if you're looking to astrology, it's idolatry. Anytime you're looking to someone to tell you, to something, to tell you the future that is not God, God mocks that throughout Isaiah. God says, listen, you're asking these idols, you're asking the stars who can't speak. You're asking the sun and the moon to tell you what's going to happen, and they can't answer you. God would repeat himself, I am God. I alone can tell the future. I alone cause these things to happen. He's saying exactly that to Babylon. Consult your astrologists, consult your psychics, consult your mediums. They're all false. Only I can tell the future. 
That is God's call to all the people in Isaiah to watch as God tells what's going to happen and then causes it to happen. Sometimes hundreds of years in advance, sometimes a year in advance, sometimes a generation in advance, but God repeatedly challenges everyone. Listen, I'm the one that causes the future. No one else. Verse 14, behold, they are like stubble and fire consumes them and they cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal or warming itself is this, no fire to sit before. Such to you are those with you whom you've labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. God says judgment is coming on Babylon and for ignoring them, for ignoring God, all of them will be wiped out. Isaiah 48, we'll wrap this up pretty quick. Verse 1, hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, who come from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city, and they stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. God is now back to the people, to the people of Israel, the people he is going to release from captivity. He says, you swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. Imagine this, you hear this as Christians. Even in the word Christian, we're identified by the name Christ. He's saying, you who identify yourselves by Jesus, but don't do what Jesus has called you to do. That's what he's saying to the people 2,600 years ago. He's saying, listen, you call yourselves the people of God. You call yourselves Israel, which means governed by God. But you don't allow me to govern you. You don't hear my calls to repent. You don't hear my word. You don't turn from the things that I've called you to turn away from. Verse 3, the former things I declared of old, and they went out from my mouth, and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck of iron is an iron sinew in your forehead brass. I declared to you them from old before they came to pass. I announced them to you lest you should say my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. He said, I declared these things to you from old. God reminds them that his proof is telling the future. Verse six, you have heard, now see all of this. And will you not declare it from this time forth? I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before, you, before today, you have never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known from your old, from of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. So God is saying, listen, I'm about to speak again. I'm about to say something you don't know and you haven't heard yet. He says, listen, will you turn and will you listen? There's a lot of imagery, that stiffened neck. Just imagine that idea of people just turning and hardening themselves away from God. That they just push this hard-heartedness of separating themselves from God. Ultimately, because God is calling them to stop doing something they want to continue or to start doing something they don't want to do. But God has said, listen, your sin has gotten you into this place, into this captivity. Will you not listen now? As I get ready to deliver you, will you not know that it's me 
And now he says this, I'm going to speak again words you have not heard yet. He says, behold, verse 10, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. He says, I have refined you in captivity. I have I've knocked the edges of your stubbornness off by leaving you in captivity for an entire generation. He said, I've done this to defer my anger. I didn't want to wipe you out because in my anger, because you were giving credit for what I do, you were giving credit to someone else. That I would do good for you and you would worship someone else. That I would do something for you and you would ignore me. And so to set my anger aside, I allowed you to be in captivity. And I allowed that to knock the edges off you, allowed that to, to, to soften you. But he says, for my own sake I do it, because how should my name be profaned? How should my name be made common, God says. Verse 12, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first and the last. Now, who proclaims himself first and last in Scripture? Sound familiar at all? Two books of the Bible use this language, Isaiah and Revelation. Here's one of the passages from Revelation. When I saw him, John writes about Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. I'm the one who died and lives again. I'm the one that went through the cross and the tomb and to the resurrection, and, God, and Jesus is calling out the people long before he even became flesh and reminding them, listen, I am coming. A Savior is coming. Christmas is all about a Savior is born. A child is coming. The Redeemer is here. Next week, we'll look at the Redeemer. So all these promises made in advance for us so that we could see Jesus coming. Imagine yourselves in Babylon, captive. You're an Israelite. You've been enslaved for 70 years, and you're sitting there, and God is saying, listen, I am going to set you free. I'm going to use a man named Cyrus, and I proclaimed that before Cyrus was even born. I'm sure there have been lots of people named Cyrus, but none of them delivered you. But now I'm going to set you free, and I'm going to use Cyrus, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, who's really just the king of the Medes at that time. He says, I'm going to use him. I'm going to set you free. Prepare yourself so you'll know. Prepare your heart so you're ready. Prepare your lives so you're, you're able to respond when that time comes. God does that all over again using these passages. And he proclaims Christ to come. 2,000 years ago, after 400 years of silence, no prophet speaking on behalf of God, up pops a prophet named John the Baptist. He says, prepare the way of the Lord. Even John was prophesied about in Isaiah. Hundreds of years before John was born, Isaiah names this prophet will speak up from the wilderness and he will call you to prepare your way for Christ. Jesus over and over speaks to them, shows how he will come, a grand salvation, righteousness will be brought to you. But then there's this call, prepare yourselves. How do you prepare yourselves for God? Verse 13, it says, My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. 
I think this is a bit of Jesus saying, listen, I know some of you worship the sun and the stars, and some of you in Babylon like this astrology thing, but I created them. This is Jesus saying, I am the first and last. I spoke, and the stars were set in the sky. You don't look to them, you look to me. Verse 14, assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. It's kind of a dual meaning there. Both Cyrus will come and conquer Babylon of Chaldee, but also Jesus will come and conquer the sinful world. Babylon has, is all throughout Scripture, including in the book of Revelation, a symbol of a sinful and pagan world. I know it's probably an old and dated reference, but if the Rolling Stones name an album Babylon, that should tell you something. <laughs> That's just for the old people. Well, no, you got Apple Music, so you're good, right? So Babylon is this symbol of a completely, a world completely gone awry, a complete failure into sin and moral corruption. And so there's a bit of a double meaning as Jesus comes to make everything right. It says, I, even I have spoken and called him, and I have brought him, and he will appear in this way. Draw near to me, hear this from the beginning. I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord has sent me and his spirit. Jesus says this, prepare the way, prepare yourself. As God is calling his people to prepare themselves to leave Babylon, as God prepared the people for Jesus to become incarnate, for God to become flesh, for Jesus to be born 2,000 years ago, God is saying the same thing to us today. What if Jesus said to the church in America, prepare yourselves, I'm going to do something new. Prepare yourselves, I, I, want, to, I want to see a, a third great awakening break out across the nation. What if, what if Jesus said, listen, church in America, who have become so much like the culture that you live in, that you're barely discernible between you and the community you live in, prepare yourself, because I want to break out something brand new on the world, and I want to use you. Would we be ready? Would we respond? Would we turn from the things that consume us, and would we turn to Jesus? That's our call this year. That's our call every day, really. But that's how we should treat Christmas. That's how we should treat this season. We should anticipate Christ to come, and we should begin preparing ourselves. Advent isn't to be some kind of liturgical or high church church that goes through all these religious motions and says these prayers and stands at the right time and sits at the right time. It's about preparing ourselves for the light who came into the world. It's about making ourselves ready. Jesus doesn't need to get ready. We do. God is calling us to prepare ourselves. Maybe it's a simple way. Maybe it's taking that touch card that's in front of you and giving it to someone. Maybe it's writing their name down and putting it on, on a wreath that we can pray for them by name each week, that we can look to them and see them and come through here and just pray for those people. Maybe it's as simple as that. Most likely, it's turning from all the things that we call Christmas and not letting them dominate us this season so that we miss Jesus. Maybe it's not about all the gifts you're going to give or get. Maybe it's about giving Jesus to those around us. Let's pray.
Jesus, soften our hearts. To use the imagery out of Isaiah, soften our necks. Loosen up our desire to turn away from you. Cause us to turn back. As you said through the prophet Ezekiel, I will take from you a heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will cleanse you from your sin. I will give you my spirit and I will cause you. I will cause you to walk in my ways and to obey my commands. God, we know it's not our hard efforts or our hard work that gets us to you. We know it's you. We don't do it. You do it. Our problem is we get in the way. That we plug our ears and don't listen. That we close our eyes and don't see what you're doing in and around us. That we harden our hearts so that we're not changed to draw near to you. God, cause us to come near this season. Again, pray for some of those names that I've read it through up there, Lord. Help us to remember to walk through here throughout the week or throughout the Sunday. And just pray for those names. On the other side of those first names, we may not even know who they are. There's somebody one of us loves. More importantly, there's somebody you love, God. That you desire them. That you want them to be yours. Not only let us get out of the way, but God, help us to, to be a part of the process, to be a part of the plan. Let us live lives that are, are worthy of pointing people to you. Cause us to look more like you. Jesus, you became like us so that we could become like you. You put on flesh so we could see what it looks like to follow God. Help us to do that today. Help us to do that this year, Christmas 2019, Advent, this season. Help us to become more like you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.